A romantic and scenic early morning boat ride turned deadly when Larry Eisenberg fell overboard, bringing the end to his early retirement. He and Lori, his wife of 17 years, shared a love that others aspired to. So it was shocking when allegations of embezzlement would cut her grieving short. Within days, their community would wonder if Larry was in on the fraud, and later, they wondered whether Lori had been grieving at all. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Just a quick reminder, if you'd like to see pictures that go with this episode, check out Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I think I'll post them on Patreon, too, now that I've got that up and running. There are links in the show description for all of those and to support the show if you are so inclined. Let's begin this heart-stopping tale of love and greed. It was the day before Valentine's Day, 2018. The weather was chilly but clear out on Lake Coeur d'Alene in Idaho. Temperatures were climbing from 20 degrees Fahrenheit, or negative 6 Celsius, at 6 a.m., to just above freezing at noon. It was really too cold to go for a sunrise cruise, but Larry and Lori Eisenberg set aside their discomfort in exchange for the chance to have a romantic getaway. They'd watch the sunrise together and then take a trip across the lake to a restaurant for a fancy breakfast. It would be a romantic way to celebrate their love. The morning was clear and beautiful. Larry would even pause for a moment during the boat launching process to send his kids a picture of the sunrise. It was 6.43 a.m. The message read, It's easy to see why Sun Up Bay got its name. He then explained that they were going for a morning boat ride, and then they'd have breakfast at the resort. An hour later, Larry would send a message to a close friend of his. In it, he mentioned the possibility that maybe he had a mini-stroke and he wasn't really feeling well enough to fish. He then went on to explain that he and Lori were already in the boat and were headed in for breakfast. He finished the message with a thumbs-up emoji. A few hours later, Lori Eisenberg would call 911 to report that her husband had fallen off the boat and was missing. On the recording, she's panicked and crying. Larry had fallen overboard and she needed help. She was stranded in the middle of the lake. When police arrived to rescue her, she told them that she and her husband had watched the sunrise, then they cruised around the lake until, at one point, Larry noticed something was wrong with one of the boat's motors. When he went to fix it, his face turned gray. He looked back at her and then fell in. She ran up towards the front of the boat, tripped over something, and hit her face, giving herself a bloody nose. Once she reached the front of the boat, she looked for him in the water, but he was nowhere to be seen. She frantically began looking for him, driving around in circles. She had left her phone in the truck, and Larry always kept his in his pocket. It was probably at the bottom of the lake by now. She honked the horn over and over, trying to get the attention of anyone on shore, but the boat was too far offshore for anyone to hear. She didn't want to take the boat in because she was afraid she wouldn't be able to find the spot where Larry fell in again. She kept circling, but she couldn't find Larry. Eventually, the backup motor stopped working. It was only then that she took a moment to breathe. When she looked around the boat, she noticed blood splattered all over and realized that she'd banged her head and her nose was bleeding. The blood had dripped all over the boat as she looked for Larry. She didn't know what to do next, so she started sifting through things that were laying around on the boat, and unexpectedly she finds Larry's phone, and she calls 911 immediately. When officers asked her where they should search for him, she seemed unsure. 
She was wringing her hands and was clearly stressed. She'd lost the love of her life, after all. Police pulled out a map of the lake, and Lori pointed out the general area she thought he had gone overboard. Divers began their search immediately, but they knew, by now, in these frigid temperatures, they were looking for a body. There was no way Larry would have survived those temperatures for hours. He'd have only had minutes before his body would have begun shutting down. Worse of all, by now his body would be submerged, in the dark, at the bottom of the ice-cold lake. If it lay deep enough and the water was cold enough, the body would never be found. The first responders felt that this had been another terrible accident out on the lake, and a horrible way to die. Lori explained to the officers repeatedly that right before Larry fell in, he was acting erratically. She said perhaps it was because he'd been sick recently. He'd been ill with the flu days earlier, but had insisted on taking her out on the boat ride. In her written statement, she described her husband's fall like this. He stood up, looked at me with a confused look on his face, and started to fall over. I jumped up and tried to get him, but I banged my head. I couldn't reach him in time. When police asked where she hit her head, she said she wasn't sure, but the blood all came from her nose. First responders believe Lori was in shock. After talking with police, she called her kids, who were frankly surprised that she and Larry had been on the lake at all. It certainly wasn't something they had done in that kind of weather before. When they heard the news, they rushed to comfort her. She and Larry had eight kids between the two of them. Lori had six with her ex-husband, and Larry had two with his ex-wife. Larry was born in 1950. He graduated from the University of Idaho with a forestry degree and began working in the lumber industry. Hard work was his mantra. He often said things like, you work hard for what you want, and you worked hard to get what you've got, and tired is only a state of mind. Larry married his first wife in 1974 and had two children with her. Through his whole life, Larry was hardworking, successful, and a saver. He was responsible with his money, and he taught his children to be responsible as well. He loved nature, the outdoors, and hunting. He liked camping and spending time traveling through the United States with his motorhome. That's what he wanted to do in his retirement years. Lori was born in 1953. She grew up in a sect of the Church of the Latter-day Saints. Her early life was marked with poverty, with her family sometimes squatting in empty farmhouses. Sometimes they wouldn't have a roof over their head at all. She married a young man named Stephen Barnes when she was 19. Rather quickly, they would have six daughters together, and after 14 years, they would divorce. According to Dateline, when Larry and Lori met, it was through Larry's business. He had needed a secretary at the timber company he worked for, and Lori was looking for a job. This job took them away together on work trips. After Lori began working for Larry, she began telling her girls that Stephen, their father, wasn't good enough, and that he needed to leave them. She wouldn't confront him herself. Instead, she broke down in tears in front of her daughters and begged them to tell Stephen that he had to leave. The girls, probably scared and unsure themselves, told their father to go, that he was hurting their mother by being in the house. Stephen told the girls they didn't know what they were talking about, but he left anyway. The truth was that Lori had been cheating on him, and that Larry wasn't the first man she'd cheated on Stephen with. 
Lori and Stephen would divorce, and a few years later, Larry would divorce his wife, too. Before long, a marriage was on the calendar. Lori's daughters were glad to see their mother happy, and Larry was certainly smitten with Lori. After marriage, they moved their blended family into a secluded cabin, nestled among tall trees and hidden behind green and brown fields, where horses spent their days grazing away. The house lay off a winding road that turned from pavement to gravel. Larry and Lori lived there together for nearly 15 years. They spent their free time working on sprawling gardens full of colorful flowers. The now grown kids and grandkids played happily on the sprawling property around the private pond that Larry had stocked with fish. It was their own little piece of paradise. By 2009, Larry had retired. He and Lori enjoyed being pillars of Coeur d'Alene. They actively tried to help their community. In his retirement, Larry was still active with various civics groups, and Lori was the passionate executive director of the Northern Idaho Housing Coalition. This group renovated properties to sell or rent to families in need. Lori had been so poor when she was young. She didn't want other families to suffer the way that she had. She didn't want people to wonder if they'd have a place to sleep at night. She excelled at fundraising and had decided not to retire when Larry did. Lori's children gathered around her while she mourned the loss of her husband. By all accounts, they'd had the perfect marriage. They'd been married for nearly 17 years and still acted like newlyweds. The relationship was enviable and one their kids and community admired. As her family gathered around her at the house, she explained she couldn't live there anymore. She wanted to box everything up and sell it. She put the house up for sale the day after Larry died and asked for help packing Larry's things. She gave several of his things to her daughters. She asked her stepson Michael to sell the boat, explaining that she didn't think she'd ever be able to look at it again. As her kids helped pack up boxes, the police would come knocking at the door asking to speak with Lori. Now that she'd had time to calm down, they wanted to hear the whole story again. She explained, once again, the morning routine. When they arrived at the boat ramp, when Larry took the sunrise photo and sent it, and then explained that as they tooled across the harbor, she'd fallen asleep, all warm and cozy, in the passenger seat inside the cabin, only to wake a short time later to see Larry's hand slip from the steering wheel till the kill switch only it was more of a hit. It fell with enough force to bend the key and break the kill switch. The engine immediately died, and the bent key prevented the main engine from restarting. Larry tried several times to start the boat, but it wouldn't go. At this point, he decided to walk up to the front of the boat. They'd used the little trolling motor to get them to shore. It was there, at the front of the boat, that he started acting strangely. He had a blank look on his face and began stumbling. Once again, she explained that she jumped up at this point, but he fell forward into the water too quickly and was never seen again. Her memory after that was kind of hazy. For example, she couldn't explain to her kids how she'd gotten bruises all over her legs from her thighs down to her feet. Her family sympathized with their mother and mourned their father, but they had no idea of what was coming and the plans that were being made just a few miles away. Ten days after Larry's death, Lori and some of her kids would be shocked when police came knocking at Lori's door, 
demanding to get inside and search the house. No, they weren't there to charge Lori with murder, but they were there to gather evidence against her for embezzlement. They took computers, electronics, and anything else which might contain information about some of the money that was missing from her work. They left after the search and seizure, but a day or two later they'd be back and they were there to arrest Lori for grand theft and multiple forgeries. Nearly a month earlier, she and Larry had been preparing their camper for a two-month vacation. They planned to head to Utah, Arizona, or California to do whatever they pleased. In the middle of this preparation, they were interrupted. Lori was called in to a last-minute urgent meeting with the board of directors in charge of the local housing coalition. Lori ran the coalition for the most part, but technically the board was her boss. She had proved her value over the years with endless fundraising, so when the last-minute meeting was called to order, the board felt more than awkward. They were forced to confront Lori with the fact that there was some missing money. The budget just wasn't adding up. They noticed that several checks that should have been signed by the board had been signed by Lori alone. She tried to explain that she knew the board was so busy and she didn't want to bother them with little things like signing checks, so she just signed them herself and sent them on their way. The board decided that they would place Lori on paid administrative leave for the time being. That way they could sift through the budget and find out exactly what was going on. Lori preferred that she just be fired, but the board didn't want to let her go just yet. The reality was they'd only seen the teaser to the shit show that was Lori's embezzlements. No one knows what kind of panic Lori felt after this meeting. She hid it well and didn't say a word about her problems to Larry. She did, however, suggest that they head to Florida instead of out west. This was a little strange because they'd just returned from a trip to Florida, but Lori suggested they go back so they could watch a rocket launch. That was something that was on Larry's bucket list. He thought this was a fine idea. His plans for retirement were to do what he wanted, when he wanted, for as long as he wanted. And when you live that way, you can change your plans easily. So south they went, heading down to Florida for the second time. While they were enjoying the warmth and sunshine, the board was investigating Lori, and what they found was pretty damning. They estimated that she had embezzled nearly a million dollars worth of money. They were in complete disbelief that Lori could have done something so sleazy. Some members of the board wanted to shout from the rooftops that Lori was a thief, but at the same time they wanted to protect the organization, so they decided to handle Lori discreetly. This meant protecting her integrity, even from her own family. The board said nothing to anyone. Lori and Larry were soaking up the sun in Florida, sending pictures of themselves relaxing at their rental house, and then they sent photos of Elon Musk's rocket as it launched. Larry could place another check mark on the bucket list. Sailing and a ride on a fanboat were also on his list. Check and check. What wasn't on his bucket list was to get so sick by the end of that trip. Larry emailed his doctor once he got home and explained that at one point he had felt nauseous, shaky. His brain was foggy and he felt unbalanced on his feet. It scared him enough that he thought he should report it. The good news was he was feeling much better now that they were back home. He concluded the email saying that he planned to live a long time yet. Lori called his sickness the flu 
and the kids, she told, expressed concern for Larry and were glad when he started feeling better. He was up and running again, preparing to pack up the trailer so they could continue with their trip out west. Lori was still keeping silent about the accusations of embezzlement, but not everyone was. Someone was leaking information, and it had reached the press. The coalition board was called to ask to comment on the investigation, and they were told the news that it would reach the public the following morning. I'd say there was a pretty good chance the press reached out to Lori, too. As that beautiful sunrise spread over the horizon on February 13th, the news of Lori's alleged embezzlement spread throughout the community. First, it reached the newspapers, followed shortly after by electronic headlines. The story was that Lori's embezzlement case would be turned over to the FBI. She had not simply stolen from the housing coalition. Oh no, she was much more cunning. She had stolen money by creating fake companies and fake invoices. She billed sources, including the government, and then she collected the money and pocketed it. The problem was, no one could find where the money had gone. Well, that's not completely true. Some of it had gone to some of her daughters. It seems that four out of six were involved in this fraud in some way. Three of those fake shell companies were set up in the names of three of her girls, Tracy, Erica, and Jessica. The fourth received money from her mother as a ghost employee. In other words, she got paid by the coalition for doing absolutely nothing. Lori had expressed to one of her girls that the housing coalition would be nothing without her. It was plain as day that Lori had felt entitled to that money. As I told you earlier, Larry had always told his two kids that they needed to earn money, and they never asked him for a cent. But Lori's daughters weren't the same way. When they needed money, they came to their mother. Sometimes she'd give them money, but she'd tell the girls not to tell Larry. He wouldn't like it if he knew that she was giving the money away. He also didn't like it when she spent all her money on her kids and grandkids. It seemed this problem was pretty small in the grand scheme of things, though. Things likely took a turn when one of Lori's daughters came to her telling her that they were going to lose their farm because of money issues. Lori told her not to worry. She said that Larry's stocks were doing great, they had plenty of money, and they could afford to help. This wasn't a problem you could throw a few hundred dollars at to make it go away. It was thousands of dollars. It might be at this point that Lori began stealing from the coalition. Later, she would add her daughter as the ghost employee. Yes, her daughters were aware of this deception. In all, the coalition estimated nearly a million dollars worth of stolen money but the FBI was able to trace only just over $500,000 worth. The strange thing was, only about $50,000 went to Lori's daughters. The rest, no one could account for. If you're thinking offshore bank accounts, I'm thinking you're probably right. Imagine upstanding citizen Larry finding out about his wife's indiscretions. What would he think? Well, according to his kids, he would have kicked Lori to the curb. In opposition, some of the armchair sleuths in the neighborhood believed Larry wasn't dead. Maybe he took that money, faked his death, and was waiting for Lori to come join him somewhere tropical. Somewhere with a non-extradition treaty. Convenient, wasn't it, that divers had been searching for nearly two weeks 
and there was still no body. In the meantime, because Lori's crimes were financial, her assets had been frozen. She asked one of her daughters, Chrislyn, to put up $75,000 as a bond so she could get out of jail. Her daughter couldn't really afford it, but Lori assured her that things would be okay. Lori was freed, and she was shaken. However, she told her daughters that she was now worried she'd be framed for Larry's death because law enforcement had it out for her now. She watched on anxiously and must have felt some relief when the divers ended their search efforts. She still didn't feel comfortable in her own home, so she made plans to move into a hotel room. She hoped the house would sell soon. She also started avoiding phone calls from the police. Call it luck, angel, science, whatever you like, but somehow, on March 1st, just a couple days after the diver's search ended, Larry's body ended up on the lakeshore. The location was miles away from where the divers had been looking for it. A homeowner would spot the corpse and called the police, who quickly identified Larry. His body immediately was taken in to be autopsied. When Lori learned that Larry's body had been found, she shut down. She couldn't go see him. Instead, she lay low. When the autopsy was done, within 24 hours, and interestingly, no water was found in Larry's lungs, this indicated to police that Larry had died of something else. Maybe it was a heart attack or a stroke, like Lori had said. The reason for his death was unknown for the time being, and more testing was ordered. Nobody trusted Lori now. People in the community wondered if she had something to do with Larry's death. But now that his body had been found... Nothing indicated that she did. Months went by, and no additional charges were placed on Lori. Her family was left to wonder why in the world she felt the need to embezzle all that money. She and Larry had plenty. He had been an open book when it came to his finances. He opened up his computer in front of the family and showed all his stocks and assets to his kids and Lori. There seemed to be no reason at all. Well, other than Lori's strange sense of righteousness... One time she'd been let go from a job. She'd asked for her files and the material she'd been working on, which she was denied. Instead of letting it go, she snuck into the building in the middle of the night and stole what she felt like belonged to her. She didn't let the law get in the way of what she felt like was hers at that time, so maybe this was a similar situation. Even after Larry's body was found, Lori continued to express worry that the police were going to accuse her of murder. She was so stressed about this, she told one of her daughters she was contemplating staging a suicide. Maybe she could disappear and her life would get a lot easier. She began saying goodbye to her children. Then one day, she did simply disappear. On May 25th, when the judge called Lori's name at the courthouse, she wasn't there. She'd skipped her bail and left her daughter owing $75,000 plus recovery fees. Part of those fees would eventually be paid to Dog, the famous bounty hunter. $10,000 it would cost to find Lori. As a condition of bail, Lori had to provide a phone number. Recovery agents pinged her number and went to the house it belonged to. A cab driver owned it. One that clever Lori often used to drive her from place to place, and one that allowed Lori to make phone calls using his phone. It was a dead end. 
A second number belonged to Lori's sister in Southern California. Police shadowed her for days, but once again, there was no sign of Lori. Surprisingly, after a month or so, Lori turned herself in. She was ready to face her financial charges. She was behind bars, and since Larry's death investigation was not quite over, investigators thought they'd ask her some more questions. But Lori clammed up. She wouldn't talk without a lawyer present. The lead investigator into Larry's death had found something. Something strange. Maybe it was a small thing, but Lori had told police early on that Larry had taken that sunrise photo. The truth was that she had taken it and airdropped it to Larry's phone. Why would she lie about that? And what else did she lie about? Well, that message that Larry sent to his friend later that morning, remember? The one saying that he might have had a mini-stroke, but was going to enjoy breakfast with his wife? It had that thumbs-up emoji at the end of it. Larry never used emojis. Police looked back at over six months of text between Larry and his friends and family, and that was the only message with an emoji. Lori, on the other hand, used emojis all the time. The lead investigator thought he was on to something. He decided to deep dive into Lori's search history, and what he found was pretty damning. Before their impromptu trip to Florida, the one that was supposed to be an opportunity for Larry to check things off his bucket list? Well, Lori searched for information specific to drowning in the area where they stayed. This included water depths, currents, and information as to where the deepest water was. She also searched boating accidents and boat rentals. The detective would find that email that Larry had sent to his doctor, saying how sick he'd become while in Florida. Had Larry been poisoned? Had those follow-up tests on Larry's body come back yet? The detective searched through all the photos of the boat and the truck and saw a picture police had taken of the inside of Larry's truck. In the center console was a bottle of Benadryl. Not necessarily an odd item, but when you're looking for poison, any drug would be of interest. Benadryl is an antihistamine. It tends to make people drowsy. But what most people don't know is that Benadryl is also known as diphenhydramine. There is some information that I can share with you that I haven't heard covered anywhere else. And that is that diphenhydramine is the primary ingredient in many motion sickness medicines. And a very similar chemical, dimenhydrinate, is in Dramamine. Beware that if you mix motion sickness pills with Benadryl, you could technically overdose. When the toxicology reports came back on Larry, sure enough, he had extremely high levels of diphenhydramine in his system. Symptoms of overdosing on this drug include delirium, psychosis, seizures, coma, and death. Lori poisoned Larry, the detective was sure of it, but could the amount he had in his system have killed him? Well, according to one toxicologist, probably not. Well, not without some additional help. He'd certainly have been unsteady on his feet and unable to think clearly. In other words, he'd be vulnerable. But what would be Lori's motive to kill him? Well, if Larry's kids were to be believed, he would have kicked Lori out and divorced her if he had known she embezzled that money. She would have been left with nothing. No husband, no money, a terrible reputation, and some jail time. 
Her secret was going to be published in the local paper on the exact same day that Larry died. A coincidence? I think not. The detective knew that Larry had been alive when they launched the boat, and that was because the sunrise photo Lori had taken was a motion photo, and in the background, Larry's voice could be heard. The detective believed that Lori crushed the drug into a bottle of naked juice. The small square bottle had been photographed along with the other contents of her purse on the day of the accident. He believed she crushed several pills into the bottle and then offered the drink to Larry. He took a few big swigs before passing it back, probably wondering why it tasted so bad. Now this part is just speculation because, again, there was never any mention of motion sickness medicine, but if you've ever tasted it or you've chewed on a Benadryl, it tastes horrible. My guess is that she would have given him a couple pills for whatever reason, daily routine, motion sickness, allergies, or whatever, Then, perhaps she told him to swallow down the juice to cover up the nasty taste of the pills. He'd do it, not questioning the funky taste of the juice because he'd taken the pills too. Or maybe the juice covered up the taste just long enough that Larry didn't notice the bitterness until he'd already drank too much. No matter how she did it, he had far too much of the drug in his body. The detective thinks she had manipulated him into a position where he was vulnerable then pushed him in. Maybe the shock of the water gave him a heart attack, or maybe he died by dry drowning, which is when a small amount of cold water is inhaled and a spasm makes the airway close up. With Larry gone, Lori couldn't fix the large motor herself, so she had to use the small trolling motor. The detective believed she drove as far from the real location of Larry's body as she could before the motor ran out of juice and only then did she call for help, which was nearly three hours later. This explained why Larry's body was found miles from where Lori had said he'd gone overboard, and this is the reason divers would never have found his body. The coroner's report defined diphenhydramine overdose as the cause of death, but could not rule out drowning completely. The prosecution charged Lori with second-degree murder, She and her defense team would settle on a deal with the prosecution, an Alfred plea, which means that she admits there's enough information to convict her, but if she pleads guilty, she can retain the right to say she didn't do it. The judge would give her a 30-year sentence, plus five years for her financial charges. Only two of her daughters would attend the sentencing, and they would speak against their mother. In closing, Lori would have the opportunity to tell her side of the story. Witnesses hoped she'd tell the truth about what happened that day, but Lori spoke for 50 minutes, telling everyone that she did indeed kill Larry. She apologized for everything she did, including fixing a drink with Benadryl in it, but that drink was meant to be for her. She wanted to take her own life, but Larry accidentally drank it. If lying was a job, she'd have been a billionaire without stealing a cent. Her search history about water depths, current, boat accidents, and drownings made these statements in court sound ridiculous. Lori will probably die in prison. Her daughters, the ones involved in the embezzlement scheme, were each given three years probation and had to repay the money they'd stolen. Larry's estate, which was valued between two and three million dollars, was used to pay back the money Lori had stolen 
and it was used to pay for punitive damages that were awarded to the housing coalition. This left hardly anything for Larry's family. Lori probably still has those offshore accounts, though. Even worse, in the course of the investigation, Larry's children found out that his will had been changed just a month before the couple left for Florida. After the handwritten changes, instead of most of Larry's money going to his kids, 80% of the money would now go to Lori and her six kids, and only 20% would go to his own two children. Larry's kids believed Lori made those changes. Larry loved Lori and provided for her every need. If his kids or her daughters needed anything, he probably would have given it to them. Lori's greed poisoned her soul, and in the taking of more and more, she lost everything of real importance. Her freedom, respect, and most importantly, love. Thanks so much for listening. If you are listening on the release date of this episode, please be my Crime Time Valentine. Take a minute to tell those who are important to you how much you appreciate them. Speaking of appreciation, you listeners are the absolute best. I wish you all fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.